as we look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, as last week we pondered the significance of baptism, and now today the significance of communion in the heart of these summer days, these ordinances and how they relate to one another, what we're asking now, Father, is that we take your word and relate it to our lives. There is something profound that Paul has left for the very end of this fifth chapter that allows for us to be able to see that the cross of Jesus Christ was central to the heartbeat of his ministry, which ought to be the heartbeat of this ministry as well. And that in the comings and the goings of these summer days, we need to be able to pause and reflect upon what matters most. What's our constant in this summer variables? And allow for your word to speak to our hearts. So Father, what we want now is to be able to open up our hearts as we've opened up your word. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many have had the privilege of being able to watch over the course of the years Ken Burns' series was put out by PBS on the Civil War. But there was an inspiring moment for Ken Burns as he was putting the series together that caused him to think about the significance of all that had taken place before, during, and afterwards. Because he was recalling a time in 1913, 1913, when the federal government held a 50th anniversary reunion at Gettysburg. And it lasted three days. And thousands of survivors of the Civil War bivouacked in the old battlefield, and they were swapping stories with one another, and they were looking up fellow soldiers. But Burns tells us that the climax of the gathering, of the reunion, was a reenactment of Pickett's Charge. Thousands of spectators gathered to watch as the Union veterans took their position on Cemetery Ridge and waited as their old adversaries emerged from the woods of Seminary Ridge and started forward toward them across the long, flat fields. Now he tells us that Phil Myers, who witnessed the event when he was just 18 years of age, wrote, we could not see rifles and bayonets in this reunion, but canes and crutches. We soon could distinguish the more agile ones, aiding those less able to maintain their places in the ranks. Well, as they neared the northern line, they broke into one final defiant rebel yell. At the sound, quote, after half a century of silence, there was a moan. 
There was a sigh. There was a gigantic gasp of unbelief that rose from the Union men on Cemetery Ridge. For it was then, wrote Myers, that the Yankees, unable to restrain themselves longer, burst from behind the stone wall, flung themselves upon their former enemies, not in mortal combat, but reunited in brotherly love and affection. It was a story of reconciliation. The fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians is the story of reconciliation. It's the story of how God has taken people who are alienated from him, separated from him, and reunited to him. And what we're going to do this morning is to look at just two verses of this fifth chapter, really the climactic chapter, not the concluding chapter, but the climactic chapter of 2 Corinthians. You're climbing Everest now, and you're making your way to the pinnacle, and now you find these two verses exploding with meaning, and what I want to do to prep our hearts as we prepare for communion is to extract five phrases from these two verses that I think will better equip us to appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ. The first phrase is found up there on the screen and will also appear in italicized form. It's the phrase, be reconciled to God. Now, to be reconciled with God means that we have been alienated from God. The alienation took place in the Garden of Eden. You might remember the story well in the sense that it was not Adam and Eve who were pursuing reconciliation with God, were they? It was God who is pursuing reconciliation with humanity. He is the great initiator. But the fact is that due to the sin of Adam and Eve, we've inherited that sinful nature. We come into this world alienated from God. Ephesians goes out of its way, in particular chapter 2, to develop this line of thought. So what we see is that we've been alienated, not only in relationship to God, but the repercussions are we are alienated with ourselves. There's psychological breakdowns in this culture. We're alienated with the environment. There's ecological breakdowns in this culture. We're alienated with one another. There's global conflict. There's sociological breakdowns in this culture. This is the culture of alienation. And what God does at this point is bring the reconciling embrace of the cross of Jesus Christ. He brings reconciliation out of alienation. Now notice that this is an appeal. The appeal is being made. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Pause now when you see that phrase that appears on the screen. He makes his appeal through us. Take the phrase through us of verse 20. Draw a line in your Bible back to the through Christ of verse 18. 
and understand that there are two dynamic throughs that he wants to connect for you and for me. In verse 18, all this is from God, not from you and me, who through Christ reconciled us to him. That is the achievement of reconciliation. So when in verse 20, he talks about making his appeal through us, that is the appeal of reconciliation. And the appeal comes through the Christian based upon the achievement secured by Christ. I do not reconcile people based upon the appeal. Rather, we are reconciled based upon the achievement. We simply appeal to people to put their faith and trust in the achiever, Jesus Christ. You've spotted two throughs, one in 18, the other in 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ. He's talking to Christians now at this point. This is what our appeal is to the non-Christian. Be reconciled, be reconciled to God. So it's an astounding thing that God worked through Christ to achieve reconciliation. And then God works through us regarding the appeal of reconciliation. And why would he choose to work through you and me? It's because he has appointed you and me, if we know Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, as his ambassador. His ambassador. Now there's risks to being an ambassador. 2012. In 2012, something took place on 9-11. No accident in time, and it's an appointment in time. In 2012 was the Benghazi attack. It was a coordinated attack against two U.S. government facilities in Benghazi, Libya. Prior to that point, most Americans had never even known Benghazi was on the map. But after that attack, it became clear that the members of the Islamic group known as Ansar al-Sharia we're behind this coordinated effort. But as memory begins to put all the pieces together, you realize that this attack resulted in the death of an ambassador, a U.S. ambassador, a U.S. ambassador to Libya, Christopher Stevens. It sent the entire political landscape in an altered state as a result of what occurred in 2012. Now, when you and I begin to take a step back from that time, we ponder the significance of the risk involved in being an ambassador. An ambassador is a representative. He nor she is representing himself or herself. No. They're representing someone else. Not only is that true politically, that is also true biblically. You and I are not positioned where we are at this time in our lives to represent ourselves at work, to represent ourselves in our settings, to represent ourselves in this family. 
you have been positioned to be a representative of Jesus Christ. You are his ambassador in the midst of all your relationships. But furthermore, not only is an ambassador a representative, it's understood that an ambassador is positioned on foreign soil. You and I are informed that our citizenship is in heaven. This world, in essence, due to its sinful state, is foreign soil at this point. It's alienated. It is conflicted. And so God has sent his ambassadors into conflicted relationships, not peaceful relationships. Conflicted families, not peaceful families. Conflicted workplaces, conflicted educational systems and the likes. And we become his ambassadors on foreign soil. And when we begin to grasp this, we know this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, as someone penned that years ago. But also, as Christopher Smith understood, his authority was not the government of Libya. No, he was loyal to a different authority. You and I are positioned on foreign soil as a representative of Christ, based upon the fact that there is a higher authority that guides you and me. So in these coming weeks, as students are getting together and heading back to school and so on, they become God's reps. As teachers start prepping for returns to the classroom, they know that they're God's rep. And no matter where you are in the hospital, whether you're medical personnel or a patient, no matter what neighborhood that you are in, higher authority foreign soil, representation, but as Christopher Smith would remind us, there is always an at-risk element to being an ambassador. It's because we live in a culture of alienation, separation, in desperate need to hear the appeal by the ambassador of reconciliation. And that's why in Romans chapter 5, in verse 10, and verse 11, while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation and now what you take is the throughs of Romans 5, verse 11. And you connect them to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 and 20. Pull your throughs together and you realize you and I are saved through Christ's finished work. And the appeal is made through the ones saved by Christ's finished work. And our appeal is based upon Christ's achievement. I don't achieve reconciling people to Jesus. My role is not to be the achiever. My role is to be the appealer, you see. And that's your role, if you're one with Jesus, to be his rep, his ambassador, where God positions you. Be reconciled to God is the appeal. But now... If being reconciled to God is the appeal, there's a second phrase that's going to appear on the screen. It's extracted out of the beginning of verse 21. 
It's for our sake. In other words, it's for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to take that phrase, for our sake, and begin to break it down. Look at the little word, F-O-R, for. That word speaks to the fact that this work of Christ is purposeful. It's not accidental. There's meaning behind it. And when you see this word, you realize then that what God is doing at this point, at the cross of Jesus Christ, as you hold the bread, as you ponder the cup that's in your hands, is that God has done something purposeful, but he has also done something personal. It is not merely done for salvation. It is done for our sake. Notice this. It doesn't even read for his sake. That's how much God loves you. You're stirred, aren't you, with the fact that in the 14th verse, and we covered it, for the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, takes you down this very narrow Greek road, you see, to a destination. You're all hemmed in. Now, God's got you all hemmed in. Maybe he's done it with your work. Maybe he's done it with your location. No matter what it is, he's going to make an appeal. He's going to make an appeal through you, his representative, no matter what street you're on, what state you live in, for, F-O-R, that's a purposeful work, but for our sake, our, it's a personal work. It's our sake, not God's sake. So I began to work my way through the scriptures and look for the four hours. And my mind was gripped by an 8th century B.C. prophetic statement by Isaiah, where in Isaiah 53, verse 5, get this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, two significant for our sake statements eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Purposeful, yes, but personal as well. Not merely for, for our, and not for him, for our now you pull that together as you're pondering the greatness of Christ's work on the cross. And you tie Isaiah 53, verse 5, together with the richness of what Paul penned in Romans 5, 4, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification if you want to stir your heart in your devotional life look up the four hour statements in the bible because not only does reconciliation involve an appeal 
be reconciled to God. Reconciliation also involves recipients. The for our sake, where we grasp that this is both purposeful and personal. If you're walking in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, there's a grave of a Civil War soldier. Stone bears the date of his birth and death. Then these words, Abraham Lincoln's substitute. You see, in the turmoil and conflict of the Civil War, where Lincoln knew thousands upon thousands were falling in his place on the field of the battle, the president chose to honor one particular soldier as his substitute, who died in his place, substitutionary. It's a symbol the fact that soldiers who perished in battle were dying, that others might live. And so we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, and we say to ourselves, there's an appeal to be made. There's recipients who need to embrace this appeal. I'm an ambassador to make this kind of connection because this is a purposeful work, but it's also a personal work. Jesus, our substitute for our sins. And he doesn't leave it there, does he? Because now he inches you forward. And now there's a third phrase that stands out in all of this. He made. Connect it now. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when I see the phrase on that screen at this point, for our sake, purposeful, yes, personal as well, he made. I understand then that in matters of the source of reconciliation, God is the source. I'm not the source. I didn't pursue reconciliation with God. I'm a runner. But God in his grace pursues us. He's the source of reconciliation. So now you've got the appeal of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. You've got the recipients of reconciliation. It's for our sakes, us, which is both purposeful as well as personal. And now you furthermore, with the phrase he made, not we made, we have been introduced to the source of reconciliation which is what the early disciples were driving at when they were trying to understand and articulate the significance of what had taken place through Christ's death and resurrection. When in Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Capture that through him again. In your midst, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Do you see the source here? The source is God, not us. The plan here, the plan for reconciliation is God's, not ours. It's based upon the fact that it says he made, not we made. That's sovereign grace. The L.A. Times tells of a screaming woman trapped in a car dangling from a freeway transition road in Los Angeles. 19-year-old woman apparently fell asleep behind the wheel about 12, 15 in the morning. Car which plunged through a guardrail was left dangling by its left rear wheel. Half dozen passing motorists stopped, grabbed some ropes from one of the vehicles, tied the ropes to the back of the woman's car, hung on until the fire units arrived. Ladder was extended from below to help stabilize the car while firefighters tied the vehicle to tow trucks with cables and chains. Quote, every time we would move the car, said one of the rescuers, she would scream, she would yell, she was in such pain. It took almost two and a half hours for the passers-by, the officers, tow truck drivers, firefighters, 25 people in all, to secure the car and pull the woman to safety. And afterwards, in a press interview, the county fire captain, Ross Marshall, said, you know, it's kind of funny, recalling all of this later. She kept shouting, I'll do it myself. She wanted to be her own rescuer. She wanted to develop her own rescue plan. Now, in an alienated culture, everybody's got a rescue plan. In an alienated culture, people are finding various ways, like Adam and Eve, to cope with alienation because they lack the capacity to pursue reconciliation. God pursues it. We are unable to due to our sinful nature. All that we're left with are finding mechanisms for coping and that's why people turn to drugs and alcohol and on and on and on. So we are left with a culture of coping and a culture of alienation. And what we need is the ultimate rescue plan to be able to address the issues of the hour. What you've done now thus far is to spot the appeal to be reconciled to God. You've spotted the recipients, you and me, it's for our sake, and you've spotted the source. It's he made. doesn't read we made. But now you're ready for the fourth phrase. Here it comes. Him to be sin who knew no sin. Now put it in context. For our sake, Not his sake. He made. Not we made. Him to be sin. Who knew no sin. Stop right there. What the Apostle Paul has done now, brilliantly, is to connect Bethlehem to Calvary. But he starts with Calvary and then backs it up to Bethlehem. For our sake, he made him to be sin. 
It doesn't read, for our sake, he made him to be a sinner, does it? No. He made him to be sin. In other words, now, Jesus Christ was designed to take the penalty for our sins. So when you're holding the bread and when you're pondering the significance of the cup, you are holding the bread and pondering the significance of the cup because our sin was placed upon him. Sin was not found within him. He is not made a sinner. Rather, he was made to be sin. This is the statement of the penalty that needs to be paid. So it's not being made by a sinner. And furthermore, it's not being finished by anything that you or I can do. And he himself is not being punished for any sin found within himself. So you are making that distinction as well. He made, God made Jesus. In other words, to be sin, that's the cross, that's the penalty. But now take Calvary connected to Bethlehem with the next phrase. Who knew no sin. And why did he know no sin? Because he was God as well as man. Only man should pay the penalty. Only God could pay the penalty. Therefore, you need a Godman. You need two natures within one body. And so this brilliant design in eternity past puts together something that connects Bethlehem to Calvary, the could and the should, are arranged in such a manner that Jesus Christ then becomes our substitute. So the phrase, him to be sin, who knew no sin, means we have the sinless one who died for the sinful ones. And all of that comes together at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now that's rich. That's your God. And he's still not done with you yet. Because he's got one final fifth phrase he wants to prep your heart for for the bread and the cup so that in him not in us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God now to be reconciled to God that's the appeal for our sake it's the recipients he made It's the source. Him to be sin who knew no sin, it's the substitute. And now the phrase, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that's the purpose of it all. Why have you, why have I been reconciled to God? It's because God has a purpose for you and me. What happens is that Jesus Christ's work is imputed to us where we're declared righteous. And then as we grow in our sanctification, righteousness is imparted to us. 
that's sanctification. And we can't confuse the two. So that in him, not in us, we might become the righteousness of God. It was a banker's term, this whole matter of imputation. It means to reckon or credit to one's account, as we've got it in our inserts this morning. In Christ's work on the cross, our sins were credited to Christ's account, while Christ's righteousness was credited to our accounts and pulls it all together. Or if you prefer a historical illustration, the Battle of Gettysburg had just been fought, and Lincoln sensed an opportunity to end the war by driving hard against Lee's rear end retreat. Swift, daring attack might do it. As commander-in-chief of the army, he ordered General Meade to pursue. These words, this letter to Meade, stands out in Civil War history. Quote, the order I enclose is not of record. Meade, if you succeed, you need not publish the order. If you fail, publish it. Then, if you succeed, you will have all the credit. If it fails, I'll take all the responsibility. See what we're saying? We failed. But Jesus Christ took all the responsibility. God pursued you. And when you pull all this together, you see the richness, the breadth, the depth of reconciliation found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We've done nothing more, Father, than to examine your word. And if we're being honest, we have just skimmed the surface but was meant to prepare us for receiving the bread and the cup, to ponder the significance of what it means to be reconciled to you, once alienated from you, now reconciled to you, based upon what you've done, not what we've done. And for this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.